Welcome back to the podcast. I am one of your hosts, Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we'll be reviewing the February 2020 print issue of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. We'll be featuring five articles, including three interviews with authors, and that will be Dennis Kramer from Boston Children's, Aperva Shaw from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Benjamin Roy from Columbia University. To start us off, I'll hand things over to one of my co-hosts, Julia. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital, Colorado, and I'm here today with Dr. Dennis Kramer from Boston Children's Hospital to discuss his paper entitled, Collateral Ligament Knee Injuries in Pediatric and Adolescent Athletes. Dr. Kramer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Julie, for having me. So to get started, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on ACL injuries in the literature. Could you give our listeners a little background on your interest in pediatric collateral ligament injuries? Yes. I think what drove this study for me was that I knew that there were a lot of collateral ligament injuries out there. In other words, a lot of time patients will come in with injuries and be diagnosed with MCL sprains or L sprains, but not necessarily get imaging that corroborates that or not have a sort of confirmed diagnosis. And so my idea, we have a sort of busy sports medicine practice. So in Boston, so we see, you know, thousands of knee injuries in a year and, you know, not, not every knee injury gets an MRI. So my idea was to kind of look through our database and find MRI documented collateral ligament injuries. So real definite collateral ligament injuries and then see how the patients did. Did they ever need surgery? How quickly they returned to sports? So just to give people an idea of if you do truly sustain a collateral ligament injury, this is a group of 50 or so that we found where we did wind up getting an MRI for one reason or another. It clearly had collateral ligament pathology, and this is how they did. Kind of to guide the thousands of kids out there that get diagnosed with an MCL sprain and don't get an MRI as far as how we can expect them to recover and return to sports and what complications might, might occur. That's a really great idea and I think a really important question to ask. So specifically regarding that, what did you find about which patients are most likely to sustain these collateral ligament injuries and how does that compare to the patterns that we see in ACLs? Yeah, that's a good question. So once again, what we saw is the majority of injuries occurred during sports. So I think 80% of our patients who had these injuries, the injury occurred during sports. And I think Football and soccer were the most common sports, at least beyond high-grade injuries. And so that's really similar to the ACL literature. So it's basically cutting and pivoting sports that puts you at risk. The mean age in our institution of these injuries was 13.8, which is probably a little young, although ACL injuries are happening at a young age. That's probably slightly younger than, than the ACL group. So it may be a slightly younger cohort. And a lot of them had open growth plates. We know that ACL injuries occur in patients with open growth plates, but they also occur in patients with closed growth plates. In our group, a lot of the collateral ligament injuries did have open growth plates. So, so that was another interesting finding. So I think it's a similar group of ACL uh, patients. It's your athletes and cutting and pivoting sports, maybe slightly younger, maybe a little bit of growth remaining. That counts for our uh, our patient population. Perfect. Um, and then from your opinion, what was the most surprising result of this study? 
I think probably the number one most surprising, I think, I think we looked at the almost 10 years of, of patients, and probably the number one most surpri- surprising finding to me was no MCL injuries needed surgery. So in, in zero cases did the MCL injury eventually wind up requ- requiring surgery for the MCL. And only one, one or two, I think only two or three cases of the LCL injuries required surgery. And those uh, were injuries that involved the posterior lateral corner. So more severe injuries, almost like ACL injuries. So I think the most surprising finding was if you had an MCL injury, you never got surgery at our institution, even if it was MRI documented, even if there were slight avulsions, things like that. And then I think just giving you, given the ratio was interesting. So 80% of the injuries were MCL and 20% were LCL. And so that sort of ratio, I think, is, is just good knowledge to have. So four out of every five collateral ligament injuries will hurt on the, the medial collateral and not the lateral collateral. And then lastly, if the lateral collateral was involved, 25% of the time, the posterior lateral corner was involved. So just another thing to be, to be aware of that posterior lateral corner injuries may be present in, the, in your lateral collateral group. And I guess the last thing is that they return to sports at two months, which is just good information to have for patients that we see that we then diagnose that, uh, diagnose this with. Great. Yeah, that's super helpful. I can tell you as somebody who's just starting out their practice, just having this information on how to guide patients and families is, is really, really helpful. Um, so you kind of touched on this, but I wanted to, to add kind of one more thing. You know, I think for our listeners out there, what other concomitant injuries should people be aware of in patients with suspected collateral ligament injuries? Obviously, the posterior lateral corner for LCL, but then uh, what about the MCL? Yeah, so that was another interesting finding we had. So for our MCL injury patients, like I said, none of them went on to require surgery for their MCL. But when we looked at these MRIs, now remember, we're getting MRIs on all these patients, so we're seeing every other injury that they had concomitantly. And so 25% of the time, they also had signs of a patellar instability event. That's either a strain or partial tear of the, of the MPFL or medial patellofemoral ligament or some sort of bone bruising pattern that indicates a patellar instability event. So though these MCL injuries are fairly benign, one quarter of them are associated with a patellar instability event. And those who take care of patellar instability know that that's not a benign condition and that those those can recur and those can eventually require surgery. And interestingly enough, the only MCL patient that required surgery was a patient that developed recurrent patellar instability down the road and then required another uh, a surgery for patellar stabilization, not for MCL surgery. So in my mind now, when I see an MCL patient, it's likely a valgus mechanism in the knee that caused it. And I, and I know to think or consider that the patella might be might have been involved with a patellar instability event and then it might affect how you brace them or how you follow them over over time absolutely that's really interesting and i think something that that probably merits a little bit more attention going forward too so uh that's a wonderful summary thank you so much for your time dr dr kramer great julia thanks so much for having me i enjoyed it thank you julia and dr kramer i agree those raw numbers are very useful for patient counseling and i will definitely start associating mcl sprains with patellar instability in my mind when i see those patients next we'll hand things off to craig lauer to discuss a recent article on the history of the peds ortho match where we are now and some evidence-based ideas for how to potentially improve the match going forward this is craig lauer coming to you from the university of north carolina Next, we will discuss an article entitled Eight Years of the Pediatric Orthopedic Fellowship Match. What have we learned? 
This is from lead author Ishan Swaroop and senior author Woody Sankar from Children's Hospital Philadelphia. So the Pediatric Orthopedic Fellowships have participated in the SF Match Program since 2010, but the results have never been analyzed. Uh, this data from 2010 to 2018 can be useful for both applicants and fellowship programs who are navigating the match process. The methods include looking at the SF Match data bank to get program and applicant data, including rank orders and outcomes, and also to look at uh, an anonymous post-match survey that was given to applicants throughout this time period, which talks about various details related to the number of applications, interviews, and costs associated with the process. So the main results can be broken down three ways. The first applies mainly to the applicants. So the mean number of applicants is 66, with the mean number of physicians being 69 in 43 programs. It was relatively stable numbers throughout the near-decade study period. The mean match rate was 81%, and this is stratified by origin and training of the applicants. So North American applicants matched at a rate of 99%, and international applicants matched at a rate of 41%. 50% uh, of the matched applicants obtained their top choice, and 93% obtained one of the programs in their top five. As it applies to programs, 67% of the programs filled each year, an average of 53 positions filled, and 17 did not. Uh, almost all programs that did not fill had just one or two fellowship positions offered, so they're the smaller programs. Uh, applicants get most of their fellowship information from the POSNA and the SF Match websites. The survey results had a 69% response rate, uh, average applicant submitted 15 uh, applications and went on eight interviews. The costs averaged $458 per interview. 19% uh, of the applicants planned to complete an additional fellowship. And comments from the applicants indicate that they wish their interviews were grouped by region or occurred more often at national meetings such as IPOS or AAOS, which would help reduce costs and reduce the time away from the residency responsibilities. So the takeaway from uh, this data uh, really depends on who you are. So if you're a North American applicant, it's really a buyer's market where fellowships are competing for the North American applicants. Um, applicants maybe then should reconsider going on so many interviews, especially if it's going to be a financial burden, considering that 93% of them will get something in their top five. Uh, programs should critically evaluate their online resources to attract applicants, and they should also maybe be more considerate flexible in terms of coordinating interviews and making it easier for applicants to attend their interview. Uh, if you can afford to defray costs like pay for the hotel as a fellowship program, it also may help your interview turnout. Thank you, Craig. Good stuff. Next, we'll hand things over to our co-host Josh Holt from the University of Iowa to discuss a recent article with author Aperva Shaw that may shed some real light into the future of orthopedics and really all outcomes-based research. As you'll hear, Dr. Shaw and his associates have tapped into the cell phones of teenage patients to figure out how they're doing in real time. It is now my great pleasure to welcome to the program Dr. Aperva Shaw from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to discuss his article, Collection of Common Knee Patient-Reported Outcome Instruments by Automated Mobile Phone Text Messaging in Pediatric Sports Medicines. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Shaw, as you reflect on your manuscript and study, what are the key take-home points that you wish that readers of the journal or listeners to our podcast would take home with them? So, the key take-home point that we want our readers to understand is that communication with children with respect to medical outcomes has really evolved, and our ability to connect with kids and understand how treatment has been effective or not for them is much more effective on a platform that kids want to engage with. So we saw a very high response rate of completion questionnaire in this study, particularly among high school students that 
have ready access to mobile phones. Our concern is uh, most patient-reported outcomes which are collected either on paper form or in the computer are often onerous and inconvenient for kids to fill out, and that if we want to stay relevant with respect to capturing the highest number of kids to participate in the study, we need to meet them on a platform that they're willing to use. Yeah, I think your study does a great job showing a strong correlation between paper questionnaire outcomes and those from a mobile device platform. You mentioned that the response rate was adequate at 60%, but certainly still leaving some room for improvement. Are there things that you think that you could employ or do differently to get a higher response rate? So I think an important thing for the reader to understand is that we oftentimes are reliant on older questionnaires or older patient-reported outcomes because they've been used historically. But many of these may not be adequately designed for a text messaging platform. So, for example, in the questionnaires utilized in this study, some of the answer stems have very long responses, and those long responses make sense if you're seeing them on a paper form or a computer screen where there's a large footprint and you can visualize the whole answer stem in one view. But when a child or an adult is responding with text messaging, screen size is obviously much smaller, and it can become more onerous to respond to a lengthy question or a question with a long answer stem response. So as we think about designing patient-reported outcomes in the future, one thing that's really important is recognizing that paper format or computer format may not be the format that we want our patients to engage with us, and questions really need to be designed with mobile phones in mind. And so I think we will hopefully see a new generation of patient-reported outcomes that are really formatted in a way that would make sense for mobile technology. And I think that's why we might see while the response rate being sufficient, maybe not as perfect as we would like. So in your mind, moving forward, would the ideal situation be creating a whole new set of questionnaires and entirely new PROs, or would it be to modify and validate the existing outcome measures to be more compatible with mobile device platforms? Yeah, I think the short answer to that question is probably both. Of course, there is a large body of literature in pediatric orthopedics that really relies on older questionnaires, whether it's the PODC questionnaire, or in this case, the PD-IKDC or the PD-FAB scales. And these are questionnaires that have been validated with other research lines and have been used in patient populations before. So the advantage of continuing to use them even in a mobile technology platform is that we can, of course, compare to er earlier studies or patient cohorts from whom prior patient-reported outcomes have been harvested. On the other hand, um, I think we, ha we are always looking for ways to do things a little bit more efficiently, more effectively, and better. And I think the future probably holds a more interactive platform. You know, in this case, it's text messaging, but one could imagine collecting data through an app or another format on the mobile phone that might be more user-friendly. So uh, while we don't want to abandon all of our traditional questionnaires, we certainly want to really scrutinize the development of new questionnaires to understand that they need to be applicable over multiple delivery devices, in, in this case, mobile phone text messaging. So that ties in perfectly to my next question. I know here at the University of Iowa and several other institutions, a lot of our patient-reported outcomes are being transitioned to Promise and other computer-adaptive testing to streamline questionnaires and really target the individual patient. Dr. Shaw, is this something that we could also be using on a mobile device format? That's a great question. So computer adaptive testing is certainly compatible with the mobile format. I would say in 2020, we are still limited by rules governing patient privacy. 
So due to HIPAA compliance issues, at the moment, uh, most robotic programming that is required for computer adaptive testing may not be compliant with the specific research institution's HIPAA policies. So I think this is something that we'll see more and more permissible at a variety of institutions as uh, rules governing patient confidentiality extend into the text messaging world. So Dr. Shah, I'm having a vision of JPO in the next several months getting 50 different manuscripts working to validate every current PRO questionnaire as compatible with a mobile device platform. Is this something that you see as necessary, or is there a better way to go about this transition where we can present these questionnaires to patients without the need to go back and revalidate every single one of them on the mobile device platform? I think that the vast majority of questionnaires will translate to a mobile platform without difficulty. And certainly, when conducting a study with a questionnaire that has not been validated on a mobile platform, the highest quality studies will include validation as part of their study design. I think the value of publishing you know, a litany of studies validating existing questionnaires for use on the uh, mobile platform is not probably of great value to the reader. However, um, I think that all of us would intuitively understand there are certain questionnaires that are clearly not formatted for the mobile phone user, and maybe those in specific have to be validated. And as we touched on earlier, certainly as new questionnaires are developed, especially for the adolescent and teenage population, we need to think very carefully about what platform these questionnaires would be administered. Of course, in the current study, we're really looking at whether or not text messaging is a valid form to evaluate these specific patient-reported outcomes. Uh, however, one could imagine in the very new f- near future that these would be collected through a mobile phone app. These are all really great thoughts, and we very much appreciate these great insights that we're getting from you. My last couple questions are in regard to the response time for your mobile platform questionnaires. Both of the questionnaires took nearly two hours and over two hours for the participants to complete. You mentioned in the manuscript that these questionnaires, when administered on the standard paper form, take about five minutes for one and 10 minutes for the other. Can you talk a little bit about this extra length of time that the patients are taking to complete these questionnaires? And if you see that as a strength or a weakness or something that we need to zoom in and intervene a little bit differently with? Yeah, so we truly believe that this is a huge advantage of text messaging as a way of collecting patient-reported outcomes. So you could imagine that if you're asking a patient to fill out a paper form or a computer form live in clinic, they have to sit there from start to finish to complete the form, and it takes in real time maybe 5 or 10 or 15 minutes, depending on the questionnaire, for the patient to complete. In contrast, if the patient is being given the form over text messaging, while completion of the form is in all likelihood going to take the same amount of time, the patient, at their preference, can break up form completion into segments of time that's more convenient for them. So as an example, let's say you have a patient, teenager, high school student, who needs to complete two questionnaires as part of an ACL reconstruction follow-up study. With text messaging, the teenager has the option, we think a convenient one, to respond to a few questions in the morning, maybe on the bus ride to school, and then a few questions at lunchtime when they have five minutes before class starts, and then maybe complete the questionnaire on their way back from school. And so by breaking up the uh, test into a series of smaller segments, which since they have their mobile device on them, uh, it allows them to do without losing their place in their questionnaire. We think this ability to respond in a way that's not synchronous with the timing of when the questionnaire is administered is a huge convenience advantage to the kid and therefore maybe a huge advantage to the research team in having a higher collection rate. 
But that leads to the question of what are we validating when we are looking at text messaging patient reported outcomes? And I think we're really validating two things. Number one, does a questionnaire translate to a mobile screen format? And number two, is it still valid if the child fills out the questionnaire in piecemeal over the course of a day or maybe even over the course of two days? And I think we found in this study the answer to both of those questions to be true, that both the change in format and the duration of time over which the questionnaire is completed neither really affects the validity of the study. And Dr. Shaw, that was really the main outcome for me, that you guys were able to show that breaking up a questionnaire over three or four different hours over different settings doesn't have any negative impact on the results. It certainly bids well for a bright future for the use of text messaging and other mobile device platforms in collecting patient-recorded outcomes data. I would just highlight one other potential advantage that in this case, you know, when in the day the two questionnaires are completed really don't matter in terms of collecting the data, let's say, at a specific time point, whether it's a week after surgery or two weeks after surgery or three weeks after surgery. But one of the huge advantages that we're seeing with text messaging is that when there's more time-sensitive data, for example, let's say you wanted to obtain a pain score from a child three times a day, it's really impossible to get that data in any other format maybe besides text messaging. So if we asked a child to respond to a phone call three times a day, or if we asked someone to log on to a computer three times a day, you're probably not likely to collect that data. And if you do collect it, it may not be timely and therefore may be subjected to recall bias. So one of the huge advantages of text messaging is for a shorter format question that's maybe time sensitive, you can really time the question and therefore the response at a very specific moment. Well, Dr. Shaw, you guys are definitely onto a great area of research that has a lot of promise for the future. So much time and energy and cost goes into data collection and management with patient reported outcomes and, and outcomes data in general, that if we're able to collect that information in an electronic system that's user-friendly, that's automated, that can be time sensitive and be directly fed into a repository of data, that can go a long way to improve not only our outcomes and our compliance, but also minimizing cost and time for the research team in general. Well, thank you again for joining us, Dr. Shaw. It's been a real great pleasure to talk with you and to have you on the program today. Well, thank you, Josh, for your time this evening. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Dr. Shaw. Really eye-opening and maybe really paradigm-shifting for the way we do research. Next, we will go back to Julia to discuss a recent article on traumatic pediatric hip dislocations. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm going to review for you today the paper entitled, MRI is better than CT scan for detection of structural pathologies after traumatic posterior hip dislocations in children and adolescents by Dr. Youngjo Kim and colleagues at Boston Children's Hospital. This paper investigates imaging following traumatic hip dislocation, an unusual but severe injury in the pediatric population that is often associated with significant injury to bony and soft tissue structures of the hip. The authors performed a retrospective review of 27 patients over a 14-year period who had MRI alone, 11 patients, or MRI and CT scan, 16 patients, after emergent reduction of a traumatic hip dislocation. Results of the MRI demonstrated an impressive array of injuries, femoral head injuries in 62.9%, posterior labral tears in 62.9%, posterior labral entrapment in 22.2%, posterior osseous acetabular fractures in 55.5%, posterior unossified acetabular wall fractures in 14.8%, posterior capsular tears in 59%, ligamentum teres avulsions in 22%, and muscle injury in 81%. 
Perhaps most striking, there were intra-articular osseous entrapments in 29.6%. CT identified fewer of all of these injuries, and importantly, CT identified none of the intact labra noted on MRI. All posterior wall fractures seen on CT scan were also positively identified on MRI. The donor site for osseous fragments were more easily recognized on MRI than CT scan. The authors concluded that MRI provides a more complete understanding of structural injury following traumatic hip dislocation than CT scan and allows identification of soft tissue pathology that may change management. This supports the use of MRI as the standard diagnostic imaging modality following emergent closed reduction of pediatric traumatic hip dislocations. Thank you, Julia. And lastly, to wrap things up, we'll go back to Craig Lauer at UNC Chapel Hill for a conversation with Dr. Benjamin Roy from Columbia University about his article in the spine section of the journal comparing the Risser and the Sanders classifications and really looking for mismatches in those patients who seem to be more skeletally mature by one classification than by the other. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, we're next going to discuss an article entitled High Risk of Mismatch Between Sanders and Risser Staging in Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis. Are we guiding treatment using the wrong classification? This is from lead author Anas Mankara, and I'm joined by the senior author, Dr. Benjamin Roy from Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Uh, thanks for being here to discuss the article. Thanks for asking me. So just to set up the discussion, uh, I'll briefly review the study question. And as a bit of background, we know that accurate evaluation of skeletal maturity is a primary determinant of scoliosis treatment. And RISER score is kind of the classic method, which utilizes the visualized iliac apophysis on the scoliosis AP X-ray. The Sanders maturity classification uses a hand film, but it's thought to better stratify patients in the peak growth velocity phase. So the purpose of this study was to determine how often RISER classification significantly underestimates or overestimates the growth remaining compared to Sanders and would therefore lead to different treatment. Uh, so, Dr. Roy, let me bring you back in here and just ask, what led you and your colleagues to ask this question? As with many of these questions, we're in office hours looking at x-rays and, and just happened to, to make the notice that there's a lot of kids that seem to be relatively mature based on RISR classification, you know, RISR 2, RISR 3, who um, had hand x-rays that were rather immature. And that we've been getting hand x-rays for five or six years now as, as standard of care. But of course, the RISR is there on the x-ray for you to look at. And it's something which we usually will track as well. Uh, and of course, I mean, that's why RISR was chosen in the first place as a skeletal marker, because it happens to be on the same x-ray you're getting anyway. So it, it's certainly a matter of convenience. You know, we sort of noticed this, and I was with my nurse, uh, Nikki Bainton, who's the second author on this. And she's like, we should look at that. And I said, absolutely. So we didn't look at, uh, you know, whatever, 150, 160 consecutive patients that we had both hand and pelvic x-rays on and kind of compared the two and, and ultimately ended up finding that, uh, you know, it was over uh, 20% of patients that there was a significant mismatch. And, you know, if you're trying to make treatment decisions based on RISR, you know, that, that you're going to be, uh, you know, probably mistaken quite frequently. Yeah. So um, to get into the, the specifics a little bit, you know, we considered an overestimate if your RISR was a two to five, so kind of beyond that typical age for bracing, but Sanders was only maybe a three to five, which would be kind of in the middle of the bracing indication. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and the decision to use those criteria, I think, is based on the classic literature where, where most of the studies looking at risk of curve progression, looking at RISR sign, 
you know, you zero to one as one, you know, as, as higher risk compared to, to two to five. And so did you see it go the other way as well, where the risks are underestimated, the skeletal maturity? We did. It, it definitely went both ways where you, you had a kid that on, you know, maybe was a RIS or zero, but, you know, was a sander six. And so that, that's a kid that maybe based on their x-ray, you think, oh my gosh, this is high risk for progression. We might want to brace them when in reality, it may not have been something that was indicated. So were you surprised by the findings? Not really, just because it's something which we had sort of noted, you know, anecdotally in the office. Uh, I don't know that we knew how high it was. I think if you had asked me before the study, I probably would have said maybe 10 or 15%. So the, the actual number of patients that were mismatched, which were... I think somewhere around 23%. Well, that was definitely a little bit higher than I would have anticipated. Yeah. So as you said before, the takeaway, if, if that number is 21.8, was what you said, then really one in five patients that you see, if you're just using risk or sign in your office, are maybe eligible for a brace and standard of care should be bracing, but you're missing them based off of the way you're doing your classification of maturity. So let me just ask, and I guess this applies somewhat to some surgeon practices, but also even pediatricians and pre- primary care doctors who are sending the referrals often comment on the RISR stage. And so, you know, they're using this, some surgeons are still using this. What, what do you see as the future of RISR scoring? Should we discard it entirely? Should we be actively campaigning against its use? How should we seek to kind of re-educate our referral base and our colleagues? Well, well, one of my uh, partners, Michael Vitale, wanted a, to start a, a trending hashtag, Kill Rizzer, um, to, to give you a sense of, of where we feel about it. It's been known forever that the Rizzer is really not great. It's just, it's convenient, it's there, and it's what everybody has been taught, you know, kind of like double diapering for, you know, DDH, which does nothing, but sure. everybody still does it. So, so for me, yes, whenever I get up and give a podium discussion about anything, I'll almost always make that comment that we really should not be using RISR to determine, you know, treatment strategies in individual patients. Now, the, the problem is you have so many of these large study groups uh, with these huge thousands and thousands of patients, which for years did not have any other additional measure of classification of skeletal maturity outside of, of RISR. And mm-hmm. it does not make any sense to stop looking at these patients as we're going forward. So it's, I think it's still going to be there. You know, it's, it's hard to get rid of because it's so ingrained. But sure. I think the more that, that we talk about it and the more I talk to my residents about it, I talk to my medical students about it. And I think over time, it will become a, a less important measure. And, uh, and, I, and I would love for it not to really be considered an important measure. Having said that, I still do. You know, I still look at it. I just, I can't help it. I mean, after, you know, 20 years. <laughs> it's, it's just, just too deeply it. ingrained. But at least now you have some kind of evidence and fuel to add to the pile of evidence that was there uh, before with this article. Well, yeah. I really appreciate you joining me today and appreciate the work that you and your co-authors put into that. Hopefully uh, with the podcast, we can, you know, maybe bring it to some more people. But if if not, then I'm sure that uh, Dr. Vitali's Twitter followers uh, can at least make this happen for us. Absolutely. Thank you so <laughs> much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. Thank you to Dr. Roy and all of our guests. And thanks to you, our listeners. If you haven't yet checked out our other POSNA podcast, it's called Interview with a PDPod. It's a different format, but we hope you'll like it. Rather than trying to hit high-yield research topics, it's more casual and centers around long conversations with some of the leaders in the field to hear their thoughts on pediatric orthopedics, life, research, teaching, and more. So that's it for this month. Thanks for joining us. 